Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 28th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. Russia and NATO are doing nuclear drills at the same time. Iran's supreme leader vows revenge for a Shia shrine bombing that killed 15. Oregon could get its first Republican governor in decades. Over 100 lawsuits are filed over the upcoming U.S. election. A report alleges pro-China meddling in the U.S. midterm elections. Meta is fined $24.7 million for campaign finance violations. Russia considers expanding its ban of LGBTQ plus propaganda. Mexico Senate votes to end daylight savings time. A report claims that climate change threatens global health. And women become a majority in New Zealand's parliament for the first time. In our first story today, it's day 246 of the Ukrainian conflict. With fresh strikes on Kyiv, Sumy and Zaporizhia, amid Russia and NATO nuclear drills. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Pravda, Ukraine Forum, Donetsk News, NBC, Newsweek, and MSN. Russia launched renewed strikes in the regions of Kyiv, Sumy, and Zaporizhia, Ukrainian officials said on Thursday, adding that a missile was shot down in the Dnipropetrovsk region. There have been no reports of casualties. However, Ukrainian officials said five civilians have been killed and 11 more were injured in Russian attacks over the last 24 hours. Three were killed and three injured in the Donetsk region. One was killed and one injured in the Zaporizhia region. And one was killed and seven injured from a mine blast in the Kharkiv region. Meanwhile, Ukrainian attacks in the Donetsk region struck a railway station in the village of Shakhtyorsk, sparking a fire in railway cars used to transport fuel. Officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, reported that one civilian was injured in Ukrainian attacks in the past day. The attacks came as Russia and NATO held separate nuclear drills on Wednesday. According to Russia's defense ministry, a land-based intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, was test-fired from the northern Plesetsk launch site, while a nuclear submarine test-fired an ICBM at a firing range on the far eastern Kamchatka Peninsula. NATO's steadfast noon drills commenced on October 17 and will run until October 30th. NATO said the drill involved 60 aircraft, including fighter jets, surveillance and refueling assets, as well as long-range B-52 bombers from the U.S. No live weapons are planned to be used. Elsewhere, the U.N.'s cultural and satellite agencies, UNESCO and UNISAT, said they joined forces to document the impact of Russia's invasion on architecture and historic buildings, using satellite imagery to assess the damage. While they said 205 sites were identified as damaged or destroyed, none of Ukraine's seven World Heritage sites have been affected so far. Okay, those were the facts on this story. We also have some narrative spins. The pro-establishment narrative comes from CBS. Putin has repeatedly threatened to use nuclear weapons. Any nuclear attack would be met with severe consequences. For now, a show of strength from NATO in terms of what's capable is the best form of deterrence. And the establishment critical narrative comes from CaitlinJohnstone.com. In this current political environment, anyone who promotes compromise and de-escalation is attacked for allegedly appeasing Putin and making the world more dangerous. 
However, history has shown de-escalation is the only way out of this mess. People who argue the opposite are profoundly misguided. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says that there's a 5% chance that at least one nuclear weapon will be detonated in Ukraine before the year 2023. Melissa, the other day, our boss, Max, the person who sends us our scripts, it was the script was late, later than usual, and I hadn't heard from him, which was unusual. And it turns out it was just a personal thing, no big deal, everything's fine. But it crossed my mind, did Boston get hit by a nuclear bomb? Are we is something happened? I didn't really think that oh, no. for real, but like the fact that that is floating out there is not a good sign. That 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 even cro- in a year ago at this time, I wouldn't that wouldn't have crossed my mind at all. Is that am I crazy or what, what do you think? Unfortunately, you are not crazy and uh, and and I'm sorry that you were having thoughts like that. Yeah. Um, but yes, you are reading about that every day. Maybe you should stop reading the news, Scott. Iran's supreme leader vows retaliation after the attack on a Shia shrine. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, Voice of America, Reuters, The Muslim News, Al Jazeera, and The Guardian. On Thursday, Iran's supreme leader vowed to retaliate against those he says threaten the country's security, a day after at least 15 Shia pilgrims were killed in a massacre claimed by the Islamic State, or IS. Ayatollah Ali Khamenei also called on Iranians to unite amid heightened tensions worldwide. This comes as the police commander of the Fars province stated that the lone attacker who opened fire against worshippers at the Shah Shiraz shrine in Shiraz was arrested, with Fars news agency reporting that he was identified as 23-year-old Hamed Badakhshan. Earlier reports accounted that the assault, which also wounded at least 40 people, had been carried out by three individuals, but they were later dismissed by officials who linked the assailant to Sunni Islamist groups. Though such attacks are rare in Iran, this is the second high-profile attack to be carried out this year in a Shia holy place. In April, two clerics were stabbed at the country's most revered site, the Imam Reza Shrine in Mashhad. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned the attack and expressed his deep condolences to the families of the victims and the people of Iran, saying that such acts targeting religious sites are especially heinous and that the perpetrators must be brought to justice. Wednesday also saw thousands of people commemorate the 40th day since the death of Masha Amini, a Kurdish woman who died in police custody after being detained for allegedly violating the hijab rules by gathering in her hometown as Iranian security forces still face protests. Thank you, Scott, for those facts. We've got several narrative spins emerging here. The first one is the pro-Iran spin that comes from the Islamic Republic news agency. The terror attack in Shiraz makes the sinister intentions of those promoting violence in Iran completely clear. Iran's enemies have drawn up a multi-layer scheme to promote insecurity in Tehran, but its national security will not be toyed with by terrorists or foreign meddlers who claim to defend human rights. ABC News brings us the anti-Iran spin. The theocracy in Iran is now trying to deem legitimate protests riots and arguing that they were a pretext for Wednesday's IS-claimed attack. There's no evidence linking extremist groups to the widespread, largely peaceful demonstrations that have been hit hard by security forces' brutal crackdown. And there's a nerd narrative on this story. 
From our friends at Metaculus, it says there's a 50 percent chance that Iran will cease to be an Islamic Republic by January 2038. I imagine back in the... uh... In the 19 teens, they no one knew the day that uh, Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated or any of those things. Like, oh, this is the thing that's gonna set off the world war. Uh, I always wonder when I see stories like this, which is increasingly often, like, is this the one that's gonna push us over? What, what's happening? Yeah, uh, that's that's a good point. It it is always hard to see blood in a, a place of worship. That's yeah, that's a hard thing to watch. In U.S. midterms news, Oregon could see its first GOP governor in decades. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, 538, Fox News, The Guardian, KGW8, NBC Portland, and Oregon Public Broadcasting. According to the polling average on 538, Oregonians might choose a Republican governor for the first time in 40 years, as a former Oregon House GOP leader, Christine Drazen, and former Democratic Oregon House Speaker, Tina Kotek, are in a neck-and-neck race. Independent Betsy Johnson is also in a three-way race. As of Thursday morning, both candidates had a 50% chance of winning, as aggregate polls showed they were tied at 41.4% in the popular vote. This forecast is based on polls conducted by eight different pollsters. Fox News power rankings also have Oregon's gubernatorial race to replace Democratic Governor Kate Brown listed as a toss-up, with Drazan gaining momentum as a bid from former Democrat Betsy Johnson is likely to split the blue vote. Brown has one of the lowest gubernatorial approval ratings nationwide due to issues including the pandemic and homelessness. A loss in November could breach a traditionally Democratic line of states along the Pacific coast. Biden won Oregon by 16 points two years ago. Last week, the three candidates for Oregon governor met their fourth and final televised debate ahead of Election Day to discuss major issues with Drazan and Johnson frequently agreeing on key issues and criticizing Kotak for her policies and work in the legislature. Despite Democratic dominance in Oregon politics, gubernatorial races have historically been tight. Since 2002, Democrats have won by an average of five points and haven't gotten above 51 percent. Thanks for those facts. Melissa Vox brings us the Democratic narrative. This is one of the most important gubernatorial races in this midterm election. If Drazan wins, it would be disastrous for climate policy and democracy itself could be threatened as alt-right militias are supporting her. The deeply unethical GOP third candidate strategy is also a way of undermining the integrity of democracy. And the Washington Examiner brings us a Republican narrative. Oregonians seem to have finally realized that its woke liberal governance has drifted the state into chaos. If elected, Drazan will address homelessness and tackle the drug addiction crisis by restoring law and order statewide. She would be the first Republican governor in Oregon since 1982, which was also the start of the historic Reagan Revolution. Be interesting to see what kind of comes of Oregon. It's such a blue Portland area, but then the whole state is pretty much rural and 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 largely red besides that. And, and as Portland, if I may say, is kind of entering like a post hipster world where like Portland's kind of already happened, is 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 it going to just become more red? Are people going to leave? What's going to happen? 
well, where's the next Portland going to be? That's, you know, the before Portland was kind of San Francisco, right? So it was, Or Seattle. Find... Yeah. And that, but something can only be ahead <laughs> of the curve and cool for so long. It's and true. also all those people that moved to Portland in the 1999 or whatever are, are getting older now. And they, like they say, uh, you know, as you age, you become more conservative. So will it just turn, will the worm completely turn on Oregon? I don't know. Mm, seems like it wouldn't true. take much. I just want to keep chasing the hipsters. Where are they going next? I mean, you know, we're kind of hipsters go where it's cheap, too, right? Well, the, by the time you hear about it, it's too late. Yeah. And, and Scott, by the time you hear about it, we're too old. That's right. <laughs> you're, you're darn tootin'. Continuing our roundup of stories out of the U.S. midterms, over 100 lawsuits are filed to date. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Cleveland.com, Fox News, the Associated Press, NBC News, and USA Today. In what has become the most litigation-focused U.S. election ever, over 100 midterm-related lawsuits have already been filed. The lawsuits, primarily from the GOP, cover issues including mail-in voting, early voting, voter access, voting machines, voting registration, mismarked absentee ballots, and access for partisan poll watchers. The Republican National Committee has filed 73 lawsuits itself, with a spokesperson saying it's a multi-million dollar investment into building an election integrity operations infrastructure that draws on its legal, political, data, and communications resources. The RNC has also hired 37 lawyers in key states and held over 5,000 training sessions on how to look for voter fraud. Other Trump-allied groups like America First Legal have also prepared for litigation battles. The RNC recently won a suit against Michigan's Democratic Secretary of State, Jocelyn Benson, over her rules around how poll watchers can operate. It's also won poll worker-related suits in Arizona and Nevada, as well as a suit on ballot curing and drop boxes in Wisconsin. One federal suit in Georgia that won't be decided before Election Day is related to a law signed by Republican Governor Brian Kemp. It outlawed the distribution of food and water to voters near polling stations. Opponents say these actions are harmless while others say the distributors are also advocating for candidates. Democrats have also taken legal action through roughly 35 lawsuits, mostly to make casting ballots easier. One of these included efforts to stop alleged voter intimidation at Arizona drop boxes. Thank you for the facts on that story, Scott. We'll start with a Democratic narrative from the source Truth Out. Since losing the last election and pulling failed poll watchers and legal stunts, the GOP has been open about their desire to be better prepared for the next election cycle. But in all political offices, the peaceful transfer of power can only work if the voters trust their voting system. These lawsuits from the GOP have only eroded that trust. And Fox News brings us the Republican narrative. To say Democrats haven't conducted corrupt or even illegal election schemes is blatantly false. And it's not only about federal elections. In states like New York and Vermont, lawsuits stopped some truly unethical actions. Lawsuits aren't signs of voter suppression. They're signs of democracy in action, just not the kind Democrats like. And narrative C comes from the Brennan Center. Extensive studies have demonstrated that voter fraud in the U.S. is extremely rare, and allegations that this occurred in the 2020 election or will occur in the midterms are baseless. While election integrity must absolutely be protected, chasing phantom voter fraud shouldn't be used as an excuse to undermine free and fair access to voting. 
And we've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says that there's an 81% chance Republicans will win control of the U.S. House of Representatives in 2022. If I was in charge of a political party, I would make sure to file some red herring lawsuits as well. So every party always like files a dispute over one that they lost closely. Obviously, they want to overturn that one. But I would also file a few on one that I won by a lot. Like, you know what? We won that one. Let's check that one too, right? And just kind of throw everybody off. I mean, that's a good strategy, right? And and actually very fair as well to just right. make I mean, sure I would the be doing system- it. I would be doing it from a place of malice, but I'd want people to think I wasn't. You understand. Oh, of course, of course. Right. I Thank was, you. Don't know who I took you for there. In more U.S. midterms news, a report alleges pro-China campaigns target U.S. elections. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, NBC, Axios, and The Record. On Wednesday, Google-owned cybersecurity firm Mandiant released a report claiming that a pro-China online influence campaign is seeking to discredit U.S. democracy and discourage voting in the November midterm elections. The report claims to have found fake accounts across the Internet that spread pro-China messaging, criticisms of American democracy, and videos allegedly from Americans downplaying the effectiveness of voting. Mandiant also alleges that the campaign, dubbed Dragon Bridge, has spread false narratives, such as linking a renowned hacking group based in China to the U.S. government and claiming the U.S. is responsible for the Nord Stream gas pipeline explosions. While it didn't specifically link the campaign to the Chinese government, Mandiant assessed with high confidence that Dragon Bridge was operating in support of Chinese political interests. According to the report, however, the campaign's efforts have seen limited results. Mandiant has been tracking Dragon Bridge since mid-2019. In 2021, the company reported the campaign was active on at least 30 social media platforms in several languages, including English, Chinese, German, Russian, Spanish, Korean, and Japanese. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Wired Magazine brings us the anti-China narrative. Despite Dragon Bridge's lack of success, it may mark a new phase in foreign adversaries' use of disinformation. While not directly linked to Beijing, its pro-China crusade leaves little room for doubt over its origination. Given China's widespread cyber intrusions, future Chinese disinformation campaigns should be a significant concern for the rest of the world as tensions continue to rise with the West. And the pro-China narrative comes from Global Times. This so-called report is yet another attempt to peddle Washington's hypocritical, dangerous, and false agenda. While pretending to seek world order, the U.S. is clutching to a Cold War mentality that villainizes countries that don't embrace its mandates. Unlike the West, China doesn't seek to export its systems to other countries, and its influence has been gained by legitimate growth. We've got another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says that there's a 20% chance of a U.S.-China war by the year 2035. You know, despite how unsuccessful they've been, that is a pretty cool name. Dragon Bridge? Well, uh, not to go back to my false flag uh, cynical operations from the last story, but I wouldn't name my thing something that cool. I would, you know, I feel like you're just asking for trouble. I would be like... uh, 
like a uh, little squirrel or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, pudgy squirrel. Uh, <laughs> it would be would be something like that. So yeah, I wouldn't be. It wouldn't be uh, Matrix Incorporated or Dragon Bridge for me. Right. No, no okay. Way. So they maybe that was their downfall. Is they were a little too confident in the name. I'm playing 4D chess over here. Yeah. Okay. I, I get it. Meta is fined $24.7 million for campaign finance violations. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, NewsBud, U.S. News and World Report, and the Washington State Office of the Attorney General. A state of Washington judge fined Meta, Facebook's parent company, $24.7 million on Wednesday after the firm was found to have intentionally breached campaign finance laws hundreds of times. King County Superior Court Judge Douglas North found that Meta violated Washington's Fair Campaign Practices Act 822 times, imposing the maximum $30,000 penalty for each violation. Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson said the fine against Facebook's conduct dating back to 2018 represents the largest campaign finance penalty anywhere in the country ever. Prior to the ruling, Meta objected to the requirements and argued in a summary judgment motion that Washington's law unduly burdens political speech and is virtually impossible to comply with. The transparency law, passed roughly 50 years ago, requires ad sellers to disclose the names and addresses of those who buy political ads, the target of the ads, and the total number of views of each ad. The Attorney General's office said Meta continued to run Washington political ads without maintaining the required information after previously paying a fine of $238,000 in 2018, prompting the second lawsuit. Meta will also have to reimburse the attorney general's costs and pay 12% interest per year on the total judgment. Thank you for the facts on that tech story, Scott. We've got a few narratives, and we'll start with narrative A from the Wenatchee world. This wasn't an honest mistake or ignorance about Washington's state laws. Meta was well aware of the requirements and decided to ignore them. Hubris of this kind deserves the maximum penalty. And Meta itself provides its own Narrative B. Meta spends billions of dollars making sure its platforms conform to electoral policies and safeguards, including transparency in political ads. However, Washington's law is almost impossible to comply with given the number of ads run on a social media site as large as Facebook. Russia will expand its LGBTQ plus propaganda ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The Moscow Times, Euro, and Yahoo Sports. On Thursday, Russian lawmakers unanimously backed a bill that would extend an existing ban on promoting so-called LGBTQ plus, quote, propaganda among children to adults. Providing LGBTQ plus information has been a criminal offense in Russia since 2013, And anyone convicted of violating the restriction faces fines of between 50,000 rubles, or $815, and 400,000 rubles, or $6,520. Citizens of the other nations who break the Russian law can face expulsion. Prohibited information includes details on, quote, non-traditional sexual relations or preferences, and any materials that allegedly can make minors want to change their gender. The ban, which must pass two more readings before being sent to Russian President Putin for approval, will include portrayals of homosexual relationships in literature, on screen, in media, and in advertising. According to human rights campaigners and LGBTQ plus groups, the intensification of the ban effectively amounts to the criminalization of any act or mention of same-sex couples. 
Although Russia has always been a more conservative nation than the rest of Europe, the Kremlin has reportedly strengthened its public embrace of so-called traditional values since the start of the invasion of Ukraine in February. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. The anti-Russian narrative on this story comes from Independent. This bill is a censorship tool that's being used in an absurd attempt to humiliate and discriminate against the LGBTQ community. It's just the latest iteration of Putin's authoritarian overreach and imposition of draconian values. And the pro-Russian narrative comes from RT. While the right of sexual minorities are important to any society, the U.S. has historically deployed its self-righteous, quote, value-based foreign policy as a weapon to further its global hegemony. This bill is important to safeguarding Russia's traditional principles and will go a long way to countering the West's pursuit of woke imperialism. And the nerd narrative says that there is a 50 percent chance that The Economist will rank Russia as a democracy in its democracy index by September 2048. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. I do think the LGBTQ plus flag is getting harder to keep up with. I, I mean, I, I feel like doesn't a rainbow cover it? All the colors and all the spectrum. I, I thought that, right, it's every single possible color. Maybe they'll just have to, like, you know, go straight Roy G. Biv with it and, and eliminate the lines and just make it like a, a spectrum that morphs into itself. I don't know. Right, so the that, colors bleed a little better. That, that sounds really hard to do on a quilt or something. It does. <laughs> it does. Mexico's Senate votes to end daylight savings time. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Times, Mexico News Daily, and Freight Waves. Mexico's Senate on Wednesday approved a bill to eliminate daylight saving time, excluding cities bordering the U.S., showing a preference for more daylight during the morning hours and ending the twice-per-year changing of clocks. With a 56-29 to 29 vote, the bill will now go back to the desk of President Andres Manuel López Obrador for signing. The president has been a proponent of the bill that was previously approved by Mexico's Chamber of Deputies in October. Mexico's Senate tweeted, This new law seeks to guarantee the human rights to health and increase safety in the mornings, procure the well-being and productivity of the population, and contribute to saving electric energy. Mexican officials stated that 71% of their population supports ending daylight saving time. They spoke about advantages reportedly ranging from health benefits to halting a policy that hadn't improved finances for families. The U.S. Senate in March unanimously voted to make daylight saving time permanent, but the House has yet to agree. Other countries like China, Russia, and India don't observe the time change, while the EU allows each country to decide for themselves. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story. PBS NewsHour gives us Narrative A. Daylight savings time is unhealthy and should be abolished immediately. Data shows that changing the clocks twice a year can have significant health impacts, with the time change linked to strokes, heart attacks, and sleep deprivation. It's time to restore our circadian rhythms. All right, and Marketplace gives us Narrative B. Doing away with daylight savings could harm businesses and the economy, with consumers more likely to stop and shop on their way home from work if it's still light outside. The time change has benefits for recreation, home repair, outdoor sports, landscaping, and reducing auto accidents. There's good reason to keep the tradition of changing clocks twice per year. Melissa, putting the politics aside, what would you prefer if you could wave a magic wand? Would you uh -oh. want daylight savings or not want it? 
I'm totally with narrative A because I work in a health field. I I know the impact of sleep and sleep deprivation. Uh, and those are these are serious links. Strokes, heart attack, and these these are uh, evidence based studies that they've done uh, on these health concerns. So you know, I do all my shopping online anyway. In our next story, a report warns that climate change threatens global health. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Lancet, BBC News, and World Economic Forum. The annual Lancet Countdown on Health and Climate Change report has warned that the world is edging closer to tipping points that will drive temperatures up and harm global health. Researchers based the results on the report of an examination of data from 103 countries. The publication, which includes the work of 99 experts from organizations such as the World Health Organization and is led by University College London, says the world's continued reliance on fossil fuels is increasing the risk to global population of food insecurity, infectious disease, and heat-related illness. The report found that temperature records were broken across the world in 2022 and that heat-related deaths have increased by two-thirds globally over the last two decades. However, the document also offered solutions to the issue, saying, quote, despite these challenges, there is clear evidence that immediate action could still save the lives of millions with a rapid shift to clean energy and energy efficiency. The news comes ahead of the upcoming COP27 meeting, which gathers 198 countries that have signed the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, committing them to act together to stabilize greenhouse gas concentrations to a safe level. The event will take place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, on November 6th through the 18th. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. Narrative A comes from NBC News. Reports are increasingly clear. Heat-related deaths worldwide have increased significantly since the start of the millennium. Extreme heat is forcing millions across the globe into food poverty, and pollution is threatening the physical and mental well-being of the global population. Governments worldwide need to act to protect our health. And narrative B comes from unheard. Despite claims that extreme weather poses a risk to global health, there has actually been a 92% decline in the per-decade death toll from natural disasters since the 1920s. Rises in global temperatures since industrialization have been relatively small, and humans have proved their adaptability through new technology. Human health is not threatened by climate change so long as populations have the resources to predict extreme weather and protect themselves from it. Metaculus is at it again with another nerd narrative. This one says there's a 38% chance that large-scale solar radiation management will be used to mitigate the effects of climate change in the 21st century. Our final story, women reach a majority in New Zealand's parliament for the first time. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, NPR Online News, The Washington Post, and The Irrigator. Soraya Piki Mason from New Zealand's Labour Party was sworn into Parliament on Tuesday, forming a female majority in the legislative body for the first time in the nation's history. The historic swearing-in of Piki Mason comes as former Speaker Trevor Mallard resigned his seat in the House to become the country's ambassador to Ireland. There are now 60 women members of Parliament to 59 men. One seat in the Hamilton West region is yet to be filled with a by-election pending. According to UN Women and the Interparliamentary Union, New Zealand is the sixth country to achieve equal representation this year. The other five are Rwanda, Cuba, Nicaragua, Mexico, and the United Arab Emirates. 
New Zealand has a long history of female representation, being the first nation to allow women to vote. The incumbent Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, is the nation's third female leader, and women currently also hold other top roles, including Chief Justice and Governor General. Thank you for the facts on that. Very cool story, Scott. Uh, Narrative A comes from Stuff. This is a milestone for New Zealand. Peaky Mason's induction is significant not only in terms of gender diversity, but also because a wahine Maori has marked this moment. New Zealand is a leading global state for gender representation and equity, and this is another moment for celebration. NPR Online News brings us Narrative B. Though this marks a historic moment for New Zealand, there's still a long way to go to ensure lasting equal representation. Conservatives are likely to make up ground in next year's general election, and they have a lower proportion of women than liberal parties. Reaching gender parity could prove transitory unless the gains are sustained. And the nerds have the last say again. There is a 50% chance that half of world leaders will be women by April 2076, according to our friends at Metaculus. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Friday, October 28th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.